Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? This episode is dedicated to the memory of the late Dr. Natalie Nagalingham, who unfortunately passed away back in August. Dr. Nagalingham was an incredible botanist who had a special fondness for cycads and their conservation, and her work really put cycads at the forefront of many people's minds, mine included. I originally spoke to Dr. Nangalingham back in 2017, and she really changed the way I looked at cycads and thought about endangered species and the way we approach conservation on this planet. And I hope this conversation can give you a taste of what she as a scientist was all about. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Natalie Nangalingham. I hope you enjoy. My name is Natalie Nagalingam, and I am a curator at the California Academy of Sciences. I work on two groups of plants. I work on ferns, and I also work on uh, a group of plants called the cycads. And cycads are really prehistoric plants. And so I started off my career as a paleobotanist, and cycads have a really long fossil record. And so that's how I started working on cycads, because I was curious about how old they were and why they've survived for so many millions of years. That's awesome. As a you know, little fossil hunting nut that I grew up being, um, I really <laughs> it kind of speaks to me on the inside. But just out of curiosity, I mean, how did you go into paleobotany? I mean, was this something? Did you always like plants, or did you kind of find that love uh, kind of serendipitously throughout your education or career? Yeah. So I um, I was a, you know a city kid and grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne in Australia, and you know I really didn't get exposed to nature and hiking and things like that. And so I found science and plants through books and documentaries. And um, I loved reading about, you know, the environment and, you know, the environmental crisis that was sort of just figuring out in the like 90s and late 80s. And so I just sort of, you know, when I was sort of in my teens, I made my own garden because I thought, you know, we really need to be more sustainable and growing our own plants. So I had like a big plot in the backyard. And then um, through university, I, you know, I did a science degree and I just found that I loved it. And I loved biology and I loved thinking about science. And so I just kept going on with my passion. That's excellent. I love those stories. And it's interesting to hear that being, you know, like a city kid, you kind of found it through these, um, you know, media routes, which I always find fascinating. And I always credit David Attenborough for my real kind of natural history obsession. So that's that, that's good that it rings true for others as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of scientists come, you know, through like or biologists come to biology through, you know, growing up in nature and going to hikes. But, um, you know, there are also a lot of city kids who ha- didn't find science that way and didn't find biology that way. So I like to talk about the fact that, you know, I'm not one of those sort of traditional biologists. <laughs> and you know, I don't always go hiking or anything. I do love going out, you know, out in the bush and out in the forest. But, you know, I'm equally happy in a city and walking around, you know, in the stores and at a museum. Yeah, that's an important perspective to have because oftentimes I think the conversation kind of says, you know, if you're in a city, there's no way you're getting interested in this stuff. But, it, you know, it can be. Not to say that a connection with nature isn't vitally important to, you know, our overall health and well-being and knowledge of these systems, but that's that's good to hear. Yeah, oh yeah. Certainly. So, okay, now uh, how did you become interested in paleobotany per se? I mean, did you just look at a cycad fossil and go, wow, or, you know, again, was it this 
circuitous route. Yeah, I so I was always interested in history and, and um, the past. And when I again, I took a class in paleobotany, and I just thought it was fascinating to hold something in my hand that was millions and millions of years old. It just sort of blew my mind. Um, and then the fact that I could actually study that was just like I found what I you know what I loved to do was like thinking about the past and how did we get to you know today. And so, you know, it still fascinates me now, like, think, you know, sitting, you know, I'm in Golden Gate Park right now, and I love to think about what did the world look like, you know, like 100 million years ago when we didn't have flowering plants and when the world was completely different. Um, and so when I started paleobotany was a way to do that. Um, and then sort of more recently during my career, we had a real major shift where we could start looking at DNA and DNA could help us tell the story of the past where fossils would were the only means to tell us that story before. Right. And that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that transition doesn't seem uh, as clear to most that aren't in the thick of it, right? I mean, to go from looking at fossil evidence, which really is kind of this direct evidence of these past processes, like you said, that are sometimes multiple millions of years old, but then to use genetics, which, you know, you, you don't pull genes out of fossils, right? You have to pull them out of living organisms. So how can you use DNA to kind of inform the past? I mean, that seems a little uh, weird to me. Yeah, so what what we use is something called a molecular clock. And so that's kind of a relatively recent discovery compared to our knowledge of the fossil record. And we call it a molecular clock because the clock ticks. And so we have, D, we have you know, we each have DNA and the DNA changes. Each individual portion of DNA can change or mutate. And so that mutation represents a tick of the clock. And so by counting those changes, we can count how many you know, thousands or millions of years ago, these two individuals or two species separated. So it's like how many ticks of the clock ago did these two different groups change? Um, and of course, you know, we sort of first thought that the molecular clock was more clock-like, but now <laughs> we realize it's sort of not clock-like. Um, but, you know, and so our, our methods are becoming more sophisticated, but, you know, at the crux of it all is still this sort of idea of a molecular clock ticking through time. Right, so you have these set standards for mutations that happen at really regular intervals, at least on the certain s sequences, I'd assume, that you would utilize in this situation. And then you can say, this one is X amount of sequence differences, and that equates to this amount of time, right? Yeah, it's like if we assume there's like a regularly ticking clock. Um, and so <laughs> that's where the fossil record comes in, because we use that fossil record to actually calibrate the clock. So if we know that, say, species A and species B separated 10 million years ago, we can use that to calibrate our clock. Um, oh, and then different portions of, you know, maybe species C and D separated 20 million years ago, and we use that to calibrate that part of the clock. And so there's sort of different rates and different times, and it involves really complex algorithms. <laughs> yeah, but we know. <laughs> We don't need to go into the math here, but that's fascinating. I love this combination of like these very physical, tangible things that are fossils and then this molecular technique that you can use in combination to tell a much deeper story than you would with either individually. Yes. That, well, so I've used this technique um, in lots of my research, but um, I think one of the most exciting results from my research was using the molecular clock for cycads. And so um, we don't have a really great fossil record for cycads in the recent. So all of the recent species, we have about 330 right now, but we don't have a great fossil record for them. And so that's where things like DNA come into play. And when we use the molecular clock for 
the living cycads, we find that, in fact, they're not millions and millions of years old. They're only 10 million years mm -hmm. old. Whereas we thought, you know, they were just sort of living fossils and remnants of cycads that lived with the dinosaurs. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because this is actually how I first found out about you as a scientist was reading that paper. Um, you know, growing up, like I said, I was a fossil nut. I love dinosaurs. What kid doesn't, right? And every paleo-artistic rendering of a dinosaur has a cycad, or at least most of them do in the background. And I've always thought, wow, you know, like you said, living fossil, the ancestors of this plant that I'm looking at in a botanical garden were probably munched on by a triceratops or something. But that, in the long stretch of, like, the lineage that is cycads, isn't necessarily the case, And as you just hinted at, right? Yeah, so I like to think about it as, you know, what we have today is, like, this totally new suite of species. But their great-great-great-great-great-grandparents lived a alongside the dinosaurs. So in the past, we thought that cycads today were left, like the individual species, were leftovers from those times, um, the, the dinosaur times. Instead, what we have to think about it is that we have cycads that evolved today, and they're all really young, um, and their great-great-grandparents died out um, millions of years ago. So we still have cycads around <laughs> with the fossils, um, well, I mean, the fo with the dinosaurs and, you know, all those pictures are still right, but they're not exactly the same species. Right. And that's an important point to make, you know, when you think about the way these ancient lineages kind of evolve over time, you're not seeing, like you said, these an exact representation of what was there. But it sounds to me like there was at least two great heydays for cycad diversification. So what really kind of... Uh, I guess, initiated the radiation of species we see today. You said roughly 10 million years ago. What was going on in the world at that time? Yeah, so uh, that's that's a question I've thought about a lot. And um, <laughs> I, I don't have a time machine to go back and find out what uh, was happening. I was hoping um, that's what you were going to say. <laughs> if only. Um, there, I think there's, you know, sort of thinking about the possibilities, you know, about you know 10 to 12 million years ago, the world was changing and the only thing that can cause a change in, you know, all of the species of cycad around the world is climate. Um, so it has to be some kind of climatic trigger. And when we look at the climate, that's when the world starts cooling down to sort of temperatures that are very similar to today. And um, so it was some kind of cooling that caused the, the, um, the new radiation of a whole suite of species. Um, it could have been that a previous bunch of cycad species became extinct um, and this new suite of species started to flourish, or we just didn't have many species of cycad at the time, and then this new bunch flourished. It's just hard to tell these sort of right. different possibilities without actually having been there or actually having fossil data to, to <laughs> explain it. Interesting. So at least, at the very least, you now have a more nuanced picture to develop all these alternative hypotheses to kind of inform future directions for research, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And so... Um, it's sort of thinking about these new these species in a different way. So rather than these plants that have held on since you know the dinosaurs were around, these are a new suite of plants that basically flourished in response to modern climates. And so it really puts them sort of in a different framework in that when we have things like climate change, they're going to be really susceptible to climate change because this is the environment that they evolved into. Hmm. That's a really good point to make in that, you know, when we had this previous idea that they survived all these major mass extinctions and just dramatic changes in Earth's climate, that's one thing to think like, oh, well, you know, they've been around this long. They might as well be sticking around. I don't think we have to worry about them. But yeah. like you said, now that you understand that this kind of was in response to the climate envelope or, you know, regime that we have now, yeah. um, you know, rapid changes in climate 
makes these species a little bit more sensitive. So, yeah, that, that kind of brings up this idea that psychheads might not be doing so well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, the changing climate is just another factor um, that is affecting the psychheads. So they're, they're really, really endangered. They're more endangered than any other group of organisms. So, you really? know, we, we talk about the amphibian crisis and, you know, coral reefs, but psychheads, two-thirds of psychhead species are at risk of extinction. So it, it's a major, major problem. Oh, that's heartbreaking to hear. Oh, man. So, yeah, the amphibian crisis. Why is no one talking about the psychhead crisis? Well, you know, they don't have cute eyes and they're not really cute. So, um, you know, people, you know, whenever you like, you know, you type in um, endangered species on Google and you'll find a panda and a tiger and, you know, you don't see any plants at all. And even when you type in endangered plants, you find things like orchids mm. and, you know, all these sort of other more sort of charismatic plants. But, you know, cycads are, are kind of, they're sort of like the forgotten, you know, little baby brother or sister that um, <laughs> we really need to be thinking about a lot more given how endangered they are. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that this idea of them being kind of this forgotten lineage, because, you know, people, when they do start to pay attention to them, at least I've noticed, they they kind of come around to seeing that they are generally charismatic plants if you get to know them a bit. But, you know, I think a lot of uh, the way people view them is reflected in some of the common names you see for them in uh, botanical gardens, like sago palm, or, you know, a lot of people just kind of lump them in with palms or ferns, but that's simply not the case. But that, I think, underscores their uh, kind of psychheads being this arbitrary, obscure, weird reference in the plant world. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's sort of like this cycad blindness. But, you know, when I've talked to people about cycads and told them, you know, sago palms grow everywhere pretty much. And so I've converted a lot of people into cycad spotters. And so, you know, they'll tell me that they've seen the cycad here or they've seen, you know, this particular species. And so, um, you know, once you start, start looking around and you see cycads everywhere, of course, there's, you know, the sago palm, like you mentioned. Um, and there's also like the cardboard palm, which is another cycad. But, um, you know, those are the really common ones, but most of them are just really rare and, and endangered. Mm. Yeah, there are a lot of obscure species out there that, uh, which we can get into in a little bit because that kind of informs the poaching. But I think to truly understand the threats to cycads and the kind of challenges they're going to face in the Anthropocene, um, you have to kind of understand their biology. So in terms of reproduction, which is kind of the key to keeping a species around is successful reproduction and recruitment, you know, what's going on with cycads? Are they fast reproducers? Are they slow reproducers? What's the biology that underlies a lot of this? Yeah, so cycads grow so, so slowly. It kind of blows your mind. I, you know, I've collected seeds and when you plant the seed, it you sort of have to sort of basically wait for a year until we get the first root and probably another six months for the first leaf to emerge. So that's like 18 months for the first leaf. And then you can get a plant that's, you know, just like a couple of inches tall, um, you know, and that plant is probably like five years old. So anything that's wow. sort of hip height or sort of human height can be like 20 to 30 years old. So they're really, really slow growing. Huh. Jeez. So what you're saying is I shouldn't give up to that uh, seemingly empty pot of zamia seeds I have sitting <laughs> in my greenhouse. They might just be putting down roots. Yeah. If you, yeah. I mean, if you, I think you definitely wait a couple of years and you might, um, yeah, hopefully something will happen. So slow and steady wins the race, but uh, not when that race involves all the changes that we're doing to the environment. So any sort of disturbance then in a species that grows so slowly uh, means that it's going to take a long time for those populations to recover, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been out in the field and I've seen places where cycads should be 
And if you think of, you know, like weedy plants, they'll, you know, they'll just re-establish anywhere. But cycads just don't do that. So you, once you remove them, it's just way, like it's almost impossible for them to like re-establish without help. So things like land clearing just completely devastate cycads because that's it. They're going to, once they're gone, they're completely gone. Mm, that sucks. So, okay, in this sense, then, thinking about threats, we've already mentioned one, which is climate change, which is really a threat to, you know, most life on this planet. But, you know, in terms of what the average individual is thinking about and, and kind of the, the, the lifetime of a human being, what, what are the major threats to cycads across the globe? What makes them one of the most endangered groups of organisms on the planet? So one of them, um, so we, we just talked about land clearing. So that's um, a really big threat. Um, and so it's just like all around the world where we're clearing land for agriculture and housing. Um, and I, you know, I've seen this myself in doing field work. The, those cycads just get removed. And in a lot of cases, they don't get relocated. I have seen some cases where they do um, with like really great sort of local environmental programs. Um, but, you know, a lot of them don't get relocated. And so given that a lot of species have really, really small ranges um, and small populations, once you remove a population or a few plants, that it has a big impact on the overall number of plants in that species. Um, the other real threat uh, to cycads, um, you know, especially given you know their low numbers, is that people poach them, uh, and so you have collectors and you know landscape um, people who want you know, beautiful landscapes. In um, and it's mostly collectors who want to steal cycads from the wild. Um, and that's because they want a beautiful cycad plant that is really big, given how small it grows, um, how slowly it grows. So they'll just go into, you know, the wild and steal a mature plant rather than wait for, you know, rather than wait 20 years for a plant to grow. And so that has really, it's like really detrimental to populations. And again, like in the field, I've been to populations where I know there should be cycads because people have collected cycads there in the past. Um, and there's nothing there anymore because people have stolen them. Wow. That boils my blood. I, you know, as if nature doesn't have enough threats to add poaching to the list. I mean, again, this is another thing where charismatic megafauna kind of take the, the limelight. And for good reason. Obviously, it's infuriating. Yeah. But, you know, here's a group of plants that are already critically endangered. And now you have people, you know, what what... Who are these collectors? I mean, it just seems so strange that such a large plant, someone could go in and just steal something that easily weighs more than <laughs> you or I. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, people steal from the wild and people steal from botanic gardens. There's been um, issues at, at several places. And, uh, you know, I've been to botanic gardens where I'm studying their plant collections uh, and they have to keep cycads behind a, a locked gate or a locked greenhouse wow. because people come in and steal them. Um, and so a lot of, uh, you know, there are collectors who, you know, do totally the right thing and, you know, buy plants that are, um, you know, collected legally and, you know, basically sort of grown in captivity, if, if you want that analogy. But there are other people who want every single species of cycad. And, you know, there are about 330 species, so it's not an impossible number. But, you know, people um, don't think about the effects of these, you know, their one individual plant, what that has on the whole population. Yeah, and that's that's another good point that you bring up and something we should definitely focus on is when I hear even just collectors of plants locally that aren't, you know, necessarily endangered, but represent something novel that someone wouldn't want to put in their garden. Uh, you know, I've talked to people and asked, well, why are you doing this? Like, well, there was a lot of them. Why, you know, what's a few plants? And, you know, they think that as long as you're not 
exterminating an entire population that, well, that's okay. But, you know, especially from a genetic viewpoint, something you're quite familiar with, what's the risk of removing even just a handful of plants from a, a, a relatively small population? Yeah, so, I mean, we're finding with the genetics that, um, you know, something that we thought was a really wide-ranging species with, you know, lots of plants is actually probably two separate groups, maybe two different species. And so if you think of that way, um, you know, we have these two much smaller species um, and just removing just a couple of plants is going to have a huge effect on the genetics of that, you know, of that population. So say you have 50 plants, if you remove five of them, that's a, a really big proportion of the genetic diversity, mm. you know, and we need genetic diversity because we don't know what's going to happen with, you know, things like climate change. There could be a virus that gets introduced to the population. And so the more diverse a population is, like anything, um, it, it has potentially those genes that allow it to survive. So you're describing this sort of extinction debt where you don't have to remove every single last species to tip it over the edge. And especially for something that's slow growing, slow to reproduce, low in numbers. I mean, that debt adds up really quickly. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yep. Oh, and so gosh. That's what I'm exploring with them, um, you know, with the genetics and genomics is trying to figure out what the genetic diversity is in the wild um, and how, you know, what areas we really need to conserve. Yeah. And on that point, I mean, where is, where are you looking? I mean, are there regions of the world where this is more of an issue, where there's more endangered cycads than others? I mean, where are some of the hot spots for this kind of work and conservation efforts? Well, I, um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from Australia. So I focused um, most of this work so far on the Australian cycads. Uh, they're a really good baseline because we have quite a few species that are doing pretty well. And so if we can get a baseline of what, you know, what are really healthy looking species looks like genetically, then we can use that information to start going into sort of more threatened regions. So we're, you know, we're pioneering, pioneering this kind of work on South African cycads right now um, and starting to look at their genetics based on what we have, um, based on our understanding of the Australian species. Wow. So you're using, again, like so you said, setting this baseline. Uh, so South Africa, I mean, I know that floristic region is, A, not only one of the most unique in the world, but also one of the most threatened. I mean, I'm guessing all of the stuff we mentioned earlier is is hitting these South African cycads pretty hard. Yeah, there's a really big problem of poaching in South Africa. I, I know somebody described a new subspecies a little while ago, and before, you know, before it like hit the press, it, you know, its plants were already being stolen. So, um, we, you know, we also have situations in like botanic gardens in South Africa where really mature big plants were stolen as well. And so these are people who know what they want and they steal exactly what they want. Yeah, this isn't some random person going, ooh, pretty and grabbing it. This is, no, no. give me that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, you need a big truck to go in and steal these things. Yeah, that's a serious effort. I mean, is there justice being wrought upon these individuals have any been caught i mean what kind of protections are in place or obviously not enough <laughs> if this continues yeah. to happen so there there are um you know sometimes people get caught um and you know south africans are sort of stepping up the you know the sort of security but um sometimes they don't get caught unfortunately um you know there are examples where there have been microchips planted in um in cycad trunks to try and track them um there are sort of security guards around um, so I think the more we can do to sort of protect them, hopefully the safer they are. Yeah. Which those seem like drastic measures, but I know, uh, I forget who said it, but they said, 
I think it was actually Stuart McPherson in terms of Nepenthes, the same deal. Poaching is becoming an issue. I'd love to live in a world where we could stop poachers from poaching, but you know, the next thing, the best thing we can do is kind of do, you know, take these drastic measures, putting chips in them, tracking their movements, adding armed guards. And it just, it's a real shame that the ethics aren't there uh, in the first place to make this not an issue, but I digress. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the ways that people have tried to solve this is, um, by raising plants, you know, in cultivation. And so, you know, you can do that with cycads. They, you know, they produce cones and you pollinate the cones and produce seeds. And so you can grow those plants really easily. And so there are botanic gardens and there are also um, companies, are private nurseries that grow, you know, these rare plants and they exchange pollen. So you can, you can get a plant that is rare, but it has been sort of sustainably grown. Right. And so... Uh... Like additionally, other than botanical gardens, you know, what what kind of efforts are being put forth to conserve these species? I mean, is there other than awareness and, and like you said, these keeping track of what's going on and, and botanical gardens growing them? What, what can like the average person do, whether that's supporting a, 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 an organization or they themselves go out and do? Because, you know, listeners from all over the world and psychads are from all over the world. Yeah. So I think. Just, I think, you know, just sort of generally be environmentally aware of you know, your choices and what you're eating. Um, but, you know, in terms of, um, you know, because cattle farming is responsible for a lot of land clearing. So, you know, just like reducing the meat you eat, um, that's a really simple thing to do. But, you know, in terms of like directly affecting cycads, you, know, you can support botanic gardens and support museums like our, you know, the Cal Academy and, who you know, who are doing work to try and help save the cycads. That's a good start. I like that. Uh, and, and again, tying back these ideas of even that, like you said, the, the, when you first said it, the what you're eating, I was like, wait, what? People are eating psychas? But then, it's, you know, just <laughs> connecting those dots. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, where you're moving forward with this, I mean, you're, you're at Cal Academy now. You're working on these genetic populations. I mean, where's your research going? What do you hope to do next? I mean, what's, what's kind of the big picture of, of your position where you're at now? So I'm hoping to expand this work sort of beyond Australia and, um, you know, collaborate with people in other regions of the world and look at really endangered species and what populations we need to be conserving. Um, one of the applications of my work is to look at these uh, wild populations and find what we have in botanic gardens and compare the genetic diversity of the two. Um, and in some cases, we found that botanic gardens are missing a good chunk of the genetic diversity. So we're telling, we're going to be telling the botanic gardens, okay, these are our sort of, you know, um, backup collections of what we have in the wild, but we need to be conserving, you know, these particular populations. Um, so I, you know, I hope we sort of, um, sort of generate this sort of backup population in botanic gardens. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, I've had people in the past uh, talk about this, but these living collections outside of their natural habitat, it's a wonderful way to say, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. We need a multi-step approach to conserving plant diversity, especially, like you said, when the genetic diversity of a population uh, matters so much to the long-term survival of the, the this group. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if we just think about it in terms of um, comparing it to zoos, we have Zoos, you know, house animals and sometimes really endangered animals, and they have breeding programs. And we can we do exactly the same with plants. Um, I think people don't think about plants in that way. Oftentimes, it's more um, it's more like zoos that you know people think about breeding programs. But you know, we have breeding programs in botanic gardens, and botanic gardens are really important houses of genetic diversity and sort of biological diversity too. 
Yes, very true. And again, like you said, support botanical gardens because generally that kind of stuff isn't lucrative. It doesn't bring in the cash that uh, you know visitors do. So that's why you need as visitors to go and repeatedly support these organizations because that's where their their bread comes from. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yep, most definitely. And I think and it's important for us to be supporting those botanic gardens that are you know con- collecting from wild populations and sustaining those wild populations. Right. Yeah, it's not enough to just kind of keep going what you already have in there because that would also kind of make that gene pool a little bit more shallow. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, you know, and it's really easy to – you could collect pollen from wild populations and that doesn't hurt the plant at all. That's a good point too. Plants, plants are a bit easier sometimes <laughs> than animals in that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so so we don't end on a dismal note and thinking about conservation, but, you know, you as a cycad lover, you've worked with cycads, you've traveled to see cycads. Um, you know, what are some of your favorite species? I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you that. Are there any highlights or experiences you've had looking for them or finding them that have really stood out to you? Um, I, you know, I just, just seeing cycads in the wild, they're just so, really, especially seeing the really, really enormous ones that are you know, <laughs> like two times my height. Um, just imagine that plant has been there for 200 years. Uh, I think it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, I love the Australian species. I don't know, I think I love all cycads. Really. <laughs> They're all really beautiful. Um, and they all have like interesting stories to tell us. So, you know, anytime I spot a population, I, I just am blown away. It's just so stunning and majestic. Yeah, it's good to know that that kind of passion always sticks. You know, it's it's easy to kind of get stuck in the grant cycle and the publishing cycle and, oh, crap, I got to go run these gels or something like that. But to know that you can go outside and still feel that, like, childlike appreciation and just, like you said, mind-blowing aspects of appreciating the species in situ, that's – it's yeah. it's, heart, it's heartwarming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just – I mean, my goal is just to sort of let them do their own thing and – hopefully provide some information that we can use to actually conserve them. Right. Yeah. It's kind of one of those situations where you're like, and this is my favorite and this is my other favorite and this is my <laughs> other, other favorite. <laughs> my favorite child, you know, it's like, I, all, I love all of them. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so, okay. This is great. You've got so much more to talk about and to do. Uh, how do people find out more about your research or just you in general? Uh, so I have a website called evolutionofplants.org. And I've got some videos and information about my research. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to learn more about cycads. There's also a lot of online resources about cycads. Um, People can look up the cycad specialist group and they also have some information. We also made a video about cycads, my student and I. Um, so people can look up that too. Excellent. I will put up links to all of those. Um, I guess my oh. one last question is, how do people know that when they're buying a cycad, it's coming from the right source? Or you know, how do you find that information if you can? Yeah, so things like um, the sago palm or the cardboard palm, they're really common and um, easy to propagate and grow. So the for example, the sago palm, it produces these um, little offsets called pups. And so it's like a, a, a sort of branch almost, um, but it's not really a branch. It's like a mini plant that the plant produces. And you can pick that off and then it grows into a new plant. So the sago palms are just everywhere. So, you know, I've seen them in Ikea. <laughs> I've seen them in, you know, grocery stores. So if you buy a sago palm, you're pretty certain that, you're, you know, you're going to get a cycad. You're going to get um, something that's related to these plants that were living with the dinosaurs but it doesn't put any other species or, or sorry, any, this species at risk. They're just everywhere. Um, if you do want to c- get a rare species, there are plenty of growers who grow cycads. 
Um, and you just need to ask to see their paperwork um, to show that the plants um, were collected legally um, and they should have no problem in showing you that because they want to be doing it properly. Fantastic. Great information and uh, something I think most people should consider uh, that like to grow weird and strange and rare plants. Yeah, yeah. It's it's totally fine. Um, yeah, I think you just need to find the right sources. Fantastic. Well, this has been enlightening, uh, slightly upsetting, but at least people like you are on the front line doing their best, uh, you know, and, and now we know other ways people can get involved. So thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Well, I'm always happy to spread the word about cycads and help <laughs> people know more about them and their problems. So thanks for letting me talk about them. Wonderful. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. Cheers. All right. What an incredible person. What an incredible scientist. My thoughts go out to her friends and family and all of those that had the opportunity and chance to work with her over the years. All of the relevant links for the work that she has done can be found in the show notes for this episode over at indefenseplants.com slash podcast, so go check them out over there. If you'd like to support the show and ensure that it has a future, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefenseplants. There's a lot of great kickbacks for helping support the show, and I couldn't be doing it without every patron that contributes each and every month. You can also pick up a copy of my book, which if you head on over to mango.bz, you can get 30% off of my book as well as all other titles until January 31st of 2023. So go check that out. And as always, I'll put the links in the show notes as well. We also have some new merch for sale, including hats and beanies. So go check that out. All of those are great ways to help support In Defense of Plants. Otherwise, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.